Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event details on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And... I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. He's the computer scientist who's known as the godfather of AI. So what does he know that we don't? I can't see a path that guarantees safety. We're entering a period of great uncertainty where we're dealing with things we've never dealt with before. And we can't afford to get it wrong with these things. Can't afford to get it wrong, why? Well, because they might take over. The former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, famously clashed with President Trump. But for the general, a more immediate battle is for America to continue funding the war in Ukraine. With all of the issues facing Americans at home, mm -hmm. why is this worth it? If Ukraine loses and Putin wins, I think you would be certainly increasing, if not doubling, your defense budget in the years ahead, and you will increase the probability of a great power war in the next 10 to 15 years. I think it would be a very dangerous situation if, if Putin's allowed to win. Showtime, baby. Rich Paul's rise to superstar sports agent It's draft day, man. Anything can happen. is one of the most interesting journeys we have ever followed. From young hustlers shooting dice in Cleveland. A slow day was $1,000. To representing NBA royalty and breaking records negotiating their contracts. He counts LeBron James as a best friend. And, oh, he dates Adele. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Cecilia Vega. I'm Nora O'Donnell. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories and more tonight on this special 90-minute edition of 60 Minutes.
This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Whether you think artificial intelligence will save the world or end it, you have Jeffrey Hinton to thank. Hinton has been called the godfather of AI, a British computer scientist whose controversial ideas help make advanced artificial intelligence possible and so change the world. Hinton believes that AI will do enormous good, but tonight he has a warning. He says that AI systems may be more intelligent than we know and there's a chance the machines could take over, which made us ask the question. Does humanity know what it's doing? No. Um, I think we're moving into a period when, for the first time ever, we may have things more intelligent than us. You believe they can understand? Yes. You believe they are intelligent? Yes. You believe these systems have experiences of their own and can make decisions based on those experiences? In the same sense as people do, yes. Are they conscious? I think they probably don't have much self-awareness at present. So in that sense, I don't think they're conscious. Will they have self-awareness, consciousness? Oh, yes. I yes. Think, oh, yes, I think they will in time. And so human beings will be the second most intelligent beings on the planet? Yeah. Jeffrey Hinton told us the artificial intelligence he set in motion was an accident born of a failure. In the 1970s at the University of Edinburgh, he dreamed of simulating a neural network on a computer, simply as a tool for what he was really studying, the human brain. But back then, almost no one thought software could mimic the brain. His Ph.D. advisor told him to drop it before it ruined his career. Hinton says he failed to figure out the human mind, but the long pursuit led to an artificial version. 
it took much, much longer than I expected. It took like 50 years before it worked well. But in the end, it did work well. At what point did you realize that you were right about neural networks and most everyone else was wrong? I always thought I was right. <laughs> in 2019, Hinton and collaborators Jan LeCun on the left and Yashua Bengio won the Turing Award, the Nobel Prize of Computing. To understand how their work on artificial neural networks helped machines learn to learn, let us take you to a game. Look at that. Oh, my goodness. This is Google's AI lab in London, which we first showed you this past April. Jeffrey Hinton wasn't involved in this soccer project, but these robots are a great example of machine learning. The thing to understand is that the robots were not programmed to play soccer. They were told to score. They had to learn how on their own. Up, oh, goal! In general, here's how AI does it. Hinton and his collaborators created software in layers, with each layer handling part of the problem. That's the so-called neural network. But this is the key. When, for example, the robot scores, a message is sent back down through all of the layers that says that pathway was right. Likewise, when an answer is wrong, that message goes down through the network. So correct connections get stronger, wrong connections get weaker, and by trial and error, the machine teaches itself. You think these AI systems are better at learning than the human mind? I think they may be, yes. And at present, they're quite a lot smaller. So even the biggest chatbots only have about a trillion connections in them. The human brain has about a hundred trillion, and yet, in the trillion connections in a chatbot, it knows far more than you do in your 100 trillion connections, which suggests it's got a much better way of getting knowledge into those connections. A much better way of getting knowledge that isn't fully understood. We have a very good idea of sort of roughly what it's doing, but as soon as it gets really complicated, we don't actually know what's going on any more than we know what's going on in your brain. What do you mean we don't know exactly how it works? It was designed by people. No, it wasn't. What we did was we designed the learning algorithm. That's a bit like designing the principle of evolution. But when this learning algorithm then interacts with data, it produces complicated neural networks that are good at doing things, but we don't really understand exactly how they do those things. What are the implications of these systems autonomously writing their own computer code and executing their own computer code. That's a serious worry, right? So one of the ways in which these systems might escape control is by writing their own computer code to modify themselves. And that's something we need to seriously worry about. What do you say to someone who might argue if the systems become malevolent, just turn them off? they will be able to manipulate people, right? And these will be very good at convincing people because they'll have learned from all the novels that were ever written, all the books by Machiavelli, all the political connivances. They'll know all that stuff. They'll know how to do it. Know-how of the human kind runs in Jeffrey Hinton's family. 
His ancestors include mathematician George Boole, who invented the basis of computing, and George Everest, who surveyed India and got that mountain named after him. But as a boy, Hinton himself could never climb the peak of expectations raised by a domineering father. Every morning when I went to school, he'd actually say to me as I walked down the driveway, get in there, Pitchin, and maybe when you're twice as old as me, you'll be half as good. Dad was an authority on Beatles. He knew a lot more about Beatles than he knew about people. Did you feel that as a child? A bit, yes. When he died, we went to his study at the university, and the walls were lined with boxes of papers on different kinds of beetle. And just near the door, there was a slightly smaller box that simply said, not insects. And that's where he had all the things about the family. Today, at 75, Hinton recently retired after what he calls 10 happy years at Google. Now, he's Professor Emeritus at the University of Toronto, and he happened to mention he has more academic citations than his father. Some of his research led to chatbots like Google's Bard, which we met last spring. Confounding. Absolutely confounding. We asked Bard to write a story from six words. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Holy cow! The shoes were a gift from my wife, but we never had a baby. Bard created a deeply human tale of a man whose wife could not conceive and a stranger who accepted the shoes to heal the pain after her miscarriage. I am rarely speechless. I don't know what to make of this. Chatbots are said to be language models that just predict the next most likely word based on probability. You'll hear people saying things like, they're just doing autocomplete. They're just trying to predict the next word. And they're just using statistics. Well, it's true they're just trying to predict the next word. But if you think about it, to predict the next word, you have to understand the sentences. So the idea they're just predicting the next word so they're not intelligent is crazy. You have to be really intelligent to predict the next word really accurately. To prove it, Hinton showed us a test he devised for ChatGPT4, the chatbot from a company called OpenAI. It was sort of reassuring to see a Turing Award winner mistype and blame the computer. Oh, damn this thing. <laughs> We're going to go back and start again. That's okay. Hinton's test was a riddle about house painting. An answer would demand reasoning and planning. This is what he typed into chat GPT-4. The rooms in my house are painted white or blue or yellow, and yellow paint fades to white within a year. In two years' time, I'd like all the rooms to be white. What should I do? The answer began in one second. GPT-4 advised the rooms painted in blue need to be repainted. The rooms painted in yellow don't need to be repainted because they would fade to white before the deadline. And... Oh, I didn't even think of that. It warned, if you paint the yellow rooms white, there's a risk the color might be off when the yellow fades. Besides, it advised, you'd be wasting resources painting rooms that were going to fade to white anyway. You believe that chat GPT-4 understands? I believe it 
definitely understands, yes. And in five years' time? I think in five years' time it may well be able to reason better than us. Reasoning that he says is leading to AI's great risks and great benefits. So an obvious area where there's huge benefits is healthcare. AI is already comparable with radiologists at understanding what's going on in medical images. It's going to be very good at designing drugs. It already is designing drugs. So that's an area where it's almost entirely going to do good. I like that area. The risks are what? Well, the risks are having a whole class of people who are unemployed and not valued much because what they, what they used to do is now done by machines. Other immediate risks he worries about include fake news, unintended bias in employment and policing, and autonomous battlefield robots. What is a path forward that ensures safety? I don't know. I, d I can't see a path that guarantees safety. That we're entering a period of great uncertainty where we're dealing with things we've never dealt with before. And normally the first time you deal with something totally novel, you get it wrong. And we can't afford to get it wrong with these things. Can't afford to get it wrong, why? Well, because they might take over. Take over from humanity? Yes, that's a possibility. Why would they I'm not saying to? it will happen. If we could stop them ever wanting to, that would be great. But it's not clear we can stop them ever wanting to. Jeffrey Hinton told us he has no regrets because of AI's potential for good. But he says now is the moment to run experiments to understand AI, for governments to impose regulations, and for a world treaty to ban the use of military robots. He reminded us of Robert Oppenheimer, who, after inventing the atomic bomb, campaigned against the hydrogen bomb, a man who changed the world and found the world beyond his control. It may be we look back and see this as a kind of turning point when humanity had to make the decision about whether to develop these things further and what to do to protect themselves if they did. Um, I don't know. I think my main message is there's enormous uncertainty about what's going to happen next. These things do understand, and because they understand, we need to think hard about what's going to happen next, and we just don't know. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. General Mark Milley completed a four-year term as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
the nation's highest-ranking military officer, on September 30th. He told us he spent most of his time working to avoid a direct conflict with Russia and China, while the country watched him have a very public falling out with former President Trump, the man who picked him for the job. General Milley's time serving President Joe Biden had its own challenges, including America's calamitous withdrawal from Afghanistan, as well as providing Ukraine with billions of dollars worth of American military equipment. A few hours before we sat down with the general at the Pentagon, he'd had his final phone call with the commander of Ukraine's armed forces. The counteroffensive that the Ukrainians are running is still ongoing. Um, the progress, as uh, many, many people have noted, is slow, but it is steady, and they are making uh, progress on a day-to-day -day basis. But expelling 200,000 Russian soldiers, no easy task. Very hard, very hard. How long is this going to look like this? Um, a year, five years? Well, you can't put a time on it, but it'll be a considerable length of time, and it's going to be long and hard and very bloody. Russia occupies 41,000 square miles of Ukraine. The front line extends about the distance from Atlanta to Washington, D.C., in Congress this past week, Republicans ended Kevin McCarthy's speakership and, for now, more aid to Ukraine. According to the White House, of the $113 billion already committed, there's only enough left to last a few more months. With all of the issues facing Americans at home, mm -hmm. why is this worth it? If Ukraine loses and Putin wins, I think you would be certainly increasing, if not doubling, your defense budget in the years ahead and you will increase the probability of a great power war in the next 10 to 15 years. I think it would be a very dangerous situation if, if Putin's allowed to win. Ukraine-Russia, obviously, is what drives this uh, meeting today. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs is the commander-in-chief's principal military advisor, but commands no troops in battle. I am obligated, uh, regardless of consequences, to give my advice to the president, but no president is obligated to follow that advice. This past August, General Milley invited us aboard the USS Constitution in Boston Harbor, not far from where he grew up. We're the only uh, military in the world that swears an oath not to a king, a queen, a tyrant, a would-be tyrant, or a dictator. We swear an oath to an idea, the idea that is American. It's, and it's embodied in that document, the Constitution, which sets up our form of government. In 2021, General Milley had counseled President Biden to keep 2,500 troops in and around Kabul. Instead, Mr. Biden ordered a complete withdrawal to end America's longest war after 20 years. The disaster that followed will be part of both of their legacies. I go through uh, the entire uh, withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan, uh, chapter and verse, all the time. That was a, a strategic failure for the United States. Uh, the enemy occupied the capital city of the country that you were supporting. So to me, uh, that hurts. It hurts a big way. But no matter what pain I feel or anyone else feels, uh, nothing comes even close to the pain of those that were killed. To those who served in Afghanistan for two decades and lost family members and friends and wonder, was it worth it? Well, that's always the question, right? So 2,461 killed in action by the enemy in Afghanistan over 20 years. Was it worth it? Look, I can't answer that for other people. This is a tough business that we're in, this military business. It's unforgiving. The crucible of combat's unforgiving. Uh, people die, they lose their arms, they lose their legs. It's an incredibly difficult uh, life. But is it worth it? Look around you. Uh, look, look, ask yourself the question. Uh, for me, I've answered it many times over, and that's why I stay in uniform, and that's why I maintain my oath. His commitment to that oath would be both tested and questioned by Donald Trump.
While their relationship began with kind words. Uh, Mark Milley, he's a great gentleman, he's a great patriot, he's a great soldier. After the January 6th insurrection, the two men would not speak again. What do we want? Justice! What do we want? Their public estrangement started in the spring of 2020 when protests for racial justice, some violent, spread across the country, including to Washington, D.C. Perhaps more than any other chairman in the role you have become ensnarled in politics and arguably threats to the Constitution. What have you learned from that? Well, I think it's important to, to keep your North Star, which is the Constitution. We, the military, uh, are not only apolitical, we are nonpartisan. Uh, you can't pick sides. June 1st, 2020. Was that a turning point for you as chairman? I think it was, yeah. I realized that I stepped into a political minefield and I shouldn't have. He's talking about the day when President Trump threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act and deploy the U.S. Army to put down the unrest on America's streets. On the evening of June 1st, after demonstrators near the White House were removed by force, Chairman Milley, dressed in battle fatigues, joined President Trump and members of his cabinet in a march across Lafayette Square to St. John's Church, where Mr. Trump posed for photographs. Ten days later, General Milley apologized in a speech to graduates of the National Defense University. My presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. As a commissioned, uniformed officer, it was a mistake that I've learned from. It's rare for a chairman to apologize publicly. Well, you know, I grew up here in Boston. Uh, I'm Irish, Catholic, and my mother and father taught me that when you make a mistake, you admit it, you go to confession, you say 10 Hail Marys and our Father. Everybody makes mistakes, and, and the key is uh, how you deal with a mistake. After you apologized, former President Trump said you choked like a dog. Yeah, I'm not going to comment on anything the former president has said or not said. General Milley did tell us he was so disillusioned with the former president's actions, he nearly resigned. Instead, according to former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, he and the general made a pact to protect the military from becoming politicized or misused. It's also been reported that you spent several days, several drafts of resignation letters. I was very struck by the one that was published, in which you said to the president, it is my deeply held belief that you are ruining the international order, causing significant damage to our country overseas that was fought so hard by the greatest generation in 1945. That generation has fought against fascism, has fought against Nazism, has fought against extremism. It's now obvious to me that you don't understand that world order. You don't think... Donald Trump understood what World War II was fought over? I don't know what uh, President, former President Trump uh, understood about World War II or, 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 or anything else. Uh, I, I can tell you that from 1914 to 1945, 150 million people or thereabouts were slaughtered in the conduct of Great Power War. And in 1945, the United States took the initiative and drafted up a set of rules that govern the world to this day. Those rules are under stress internationally. President Putin is a direct frontal assault on those rules. Uh, China is trying to revise those rules to their own benefit. But that's one thing to say that China is threatening that world order and Russia is threatening that world order. To say that the commander-in-chief, Donald Trump, was ruining the international order and causing significant damage. What did you see that caused you to write that? I I would say that... It's got to be more than walking into Lafayette Square in uniform. 
there was a wide variety of initiatives that were ongoing. One of them, of course, was withdrawing troops out of NATO. Those were initiatives that placed at risk, um, you know, I think, America's role in the world. Now, that is uh, the opposite of uh, what my parents and, and uh, 18 million others wore the uniform for World War II to defeat. General Milley doesn't just revere the greatest generation. He was raised by it. His father was a Navy medic who served in the Pacific Campaign, including at the Battle of Iwo Jima. His mother joined the Naval Reserve to work as a nurse. Well, this was and still remains a very patriotic neighborhood. After the war, they settled in Winchester, a small town north of Boston. Almost every single uh, male and female uh, parent that was here, they're all World War II veterans of one kind or another. Uh, the whole or, block, really, a lot of people. Everybody, yeah, 100%. And interesting, no officers. Uh, these were all 100% enlisted, and, uh, and they had their own opinions of officers, too. And, Including uh, your parents, uh, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. During high school, he was recruited to play ice hockey at Princeton University and decided to join the Reserve Officers Training Corps, or ROTC. After graduating in 1980, he went on to become a paratrooper and serve in special forces. He did one combat tour in Iraq and three in Afghanistan. Raise your right hand. This past May, he returned to Princeton to commission the graduating ROTC class. Congratulations to every one of you and took a particular interest All right, cadets. in a few of the young officers whose language skills are currently in high demand. I speak Chinese, sir. Chinese is really, really important to us. Does anybody else speak Chinese? Whoa. One, two, three, four, five. If you speak Chinese, if you don't mind, I'd like to get your names, uh, and we'll see where life takes you guys. We, the United States, need to take the challenge, the military challenge of China extraordinarily seriously. How concerned are you that military-to-military -military communications are not happening right now with China? Yeah, I think we need to get that established. Uh, we had them for a period of time, and then they've dropped off. So channels of communication are important in order to de-escalate in time of crisis. General Milley says he held a total of five calls with his Chinese military counterparts during the Trump and Biden administrations. But it was his last two calls during the final months of the Trump presidency that got the attention of the press, Congress, and the former president himself. Why did you think it was so important to call your Chinese military counterpart in the aftermath of the January 6th attacks? That's an example of de-escalation. So there was clear indications uh, that the Chinese were very concerned about what they were observing here in the United States. Uh, Did so you see important. some movement of Chinese military equipment? I won't go over anything classified. Um, so I won't discuss exactly what we saw or didn't see or what we heard or didn't hear. Uh, I will just say that uh, there was clear indications that the Chinese are very concerned. President Trump recently said that your dealings with China were so egregious that in times gone by, the punishment would have been death. That's right, he said that. But for the record, was there anything inappropriate or treasonous about the calls you made to China? Absolutely not. Zero. None. And not only that, they were authorized. They are coordinated. Uh, Congress knows that. We've answered these questions uh, several different times in writing. Were you giving the Chinese information about thinking of the president 
of the United States. The specific conversation was, uh, I think, in accordance with uh, the intent of the Secretary of Defense, which was to make sure the Chinese knew that we were not going to attack them. Why did the Chinese think that the U.S. under then-President Trump was going to attack them? The Chinese were concerned about uh, what what is commonly referred to in in the English language, like an October surprise, wag the dog sort of thing. Uh, They were wrong. They were not reading us right. Look, President Trump was not going to attack China. Uh, And they needed to know that. China, Russia, and the war in Ukraine are now the problem of his successor, Air Force General Charles Q. Brown, Jr. There are also areas of concern closer to home. Last year, the Army missed its recruiting numbers by 15,000 soldiers, the worst shortfall in decades. Confidence in the U.S. military is at its lowest in two decades. Do you bear any personal responsibility for that? Absolutely. I I think as the leader of the military, the uniformed military, I think that I am part of that for sure. I think the walk from the White House to the St. John's Church, I think that uh, helped create some of that. I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, helped create some of that. But I would also say the United States military is still one of the most respected institutions in the United States by a long shot, uh, by a huge margin. You know, I I think we've uh, taken a slip back a little bit, and I think we need to improve on that. When you choose Organic Valley, Not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's O-V-dot-C-O-O-P. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Rich Paul has become one of the premier agents in professional sports. He counts LeBron James as a close friend and client. The agency he founded, Clutch Sports Group, made deals worth almost $900 million this past summer for his NBA clients alone. Paul honed his deal-making instincts as a kid, navigating what he called the hostile streets of his Cleveland neighborhood. Today, at 42, he's rewriting the playbook for representing pro athletes. Rich Paul told us he was lucky, and when you hear his story, we think you'll understand why. So did you used to come to games when you were younger? I went one time when I had to uh, sit all the way up at the top and you really couldn't, couldn't see the person. And now? Now it's now. You're sitting on the floor. We joined Rich Paul courtside at a Cleveland Cavaliers game last season. He seemed to know everyone. Yeah, what up, Doc? It's good. And it seemed everyone wanted to know him. Thank you so right, much. No problem. Hey, hey, bro. Thank you, brother. You're I appreciate good. it. Last year, Paul got Cleveland star Darius Garland a $200 million deal, the richest in franchise history. Garland is one of nearly 200 athletes on Paul's roster. 
Who are some of the big names that we would all recognize? Which sport do you want? I mean, we just had Jalen Hurts and, and, and Devontae Smith playing the Super Bowl for the Philadelphia Eagles. And then you got the Anthony Davises and uh, Draymond Greens and obviously LeBron. Do you, do you know the total value of the contracts you've negotiated? I would say it's close to $3 billion, I think. It's more than $4 billion, but it's hard to keep track when you're uh, always on the go. Showtime, baby. Before the NBA draft in New York City, we watched him work the phones. You know, it's draft day, man. Anything can happen. Work the room. Hey, Coach Sell. How you doing? How you doing, man? You all right? And work the angles to move clients like Duke center Derek Lively II up the draft board. You ready? Yes, sir. In college, Lively was known for his defense, but Paul had him work on his three-point shot and before the draft invited teams to see. Lively shot up to the 12th pick, about 10 spots higher than first projected. It might not look like it, but Rich Paul is a towering figure in the NBA. I've always been the smallest guy in the room, willing to take the biggest swing. Some of his biggest swings have been for his biggest client, LeBron James. Paul negotiated his jumps from Miami to Cleveland to L.A., deals that netted James $400 million and set him up to win two of his four championships. He told us he works to give players leverage. Some people say that you're destroying the player loyalty to the teams and the fans. Player loyalty to what? If I could be traded in the middle of the night to another team, what I should be is educating myself to where if this isn't going the way I thought it was supposed to go, I can switch up, right? We're not I have options. I have op. What's the sense of having money with no options? That's apparently how superstar Anthony Davis felt in 2018. The New Orleans Center had a $127 million contract but was tired of losing. So he fired his agent and hired Rich Paul. Paul flouted NBA rules by publicly demanding a trade, earning the wrath of fans and a $50,000 fine for Davis. The drama landed Paul on the cover of Sports Illustrated, which called him the most polarizing figure in the NBA. When it was someone that didn't look like me, it was genius. It was why you get a power agent. But when it's me, I'm destroying the league. I mean, those things are absurd. He got Davis what he wanted, a championship ring and a deal now worth $270 million. There's a saying that goes, if you don't got no haters, you ain't popping. <laughs> so you must be popping. I think I'm popping a little bit, you know. <laughs> he was popping a lot at his annual All-Star Game party this past winter in Salt Lake City. What's up, Doc? We dropped in and saw giants of the court mingling with rappers, team owners, and titans of industry over cocktails and canapes. Rich Paul had a full plate of business options, one from the president of Gatorade. I want to be a first call. Done. While we were chatting with him, Golden State Warrior Draymond Green cut in. The four-time NBA champion cycled through two other agents before signing up with Rich Paul, who landed him a $100 million contract over the summer. 
So then you end up a young black man who's made more money than you can ever imagine, but you don't know how to live with it. You don't know what to do with it. And what does he do? Most Asians treat athletes as if the athlete worked for them. But there's a multi-billion dollar business going on around most athletes that they don't understand, but they don't have a rich part to teach them. And that's what's special about it. Paul's improbable journey, the subject of his new memoir, Out This Week, started on the east side of Cleveland in the early 1980s, just as crack cocaine hit the streets. When he was about four, he learned his mother Minerva was hooked on crack. His father, Big Rich, recognized his son's intelligence and kept him close, though they lived apart. He owned the neighborhood convenience store. So your dad's store was just right in here? Yeah, and this was, this was my world. This now empty corner was a hotbed of activity, legal and illegal. It was a shootout right here on this corner. Big Rich taught his son to always think two steps ahead. He scraped together the money to send him to a Catholic high school away from the neighborhood. Still, there was no avoiding the streets. You don't know what you're in. That's your norm. That's my norm. Sardines out the can. That was today's version of tuna tartare on the Waldorf rooftop. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this was my education, though. This was, this was my Harvard, my Michigan, my Morehouse. And the same things I learned on this corner, I take into the boardroom. Because the one thing this teaches you that I don't think you can learn from those institutions is people, characters. And on these streets, it's no better way to learn character because they're coming with everything. His dad taught him another skill, a way to make money if all else fails, with a pair of dice. Paul and his best friend, Edward Givens, were regulars at an open-air casino in the park. Fifty people crowded around this little area, and the energy was high. It was, it was an arena. And Rich Paul was a natural. And how much would you earn? I mean... A slow day was $1,000. And a not slow day? Uh, no, four or five. Four or five $5,000. Yeah. Easy. When Easy. you were 14, 15, 16. Oh, yeah. But what did you learn from this experience? You gain a resilience here. We won majority of the time. But you also had to learn how to lose. He suffered his biggest loss when he was 19. His father died from cancer, and Paul went all in on the streets, selling marijuana and crack cocaine. This is the very drug that your mother was hooked on. The absence of my dad allowed me to, to take that step, because I would have never done that had he been around. I had too much respect for him. And it's not something that I would sit here and, and glorify. It almost sounds like you were a full-time hustler. Oh, yeah. But Jeff Bezos is a hustler. Think he's not? Phil Knight was the ultimate hustler. The difference is they could go with their plan and their business idea and get someone to believe in them. It didn't matter what idea I had. There's no pathway to get there. He found one through a stroke of luck. At the Akron-Canton Airport in 2001, Paul was wearing a throwback jersey like this one that caught the eye of another traveler, high school hoop sensation LeBron James. What did you see in him? 
it began with him, you know, wearing a throwback jersey that I, you know, loved. But as we got to talk about sports, we started evolving and even talking more and more just about life and about our upbringing, about our our moms and, and, and our communities and stuff of that nature. And it um, just kind of struck. It just struck a chord. When James entered the NBA, he hired Rich Paul as a right-hand man. Paul went on to work for LeBron's agent and watched, listened, and learned. I understand that you would go into meetings with the likes of Warren Buffett. Being in those rooms is much better to to listen than to talk. If you listen, you might actually learn something, and you start to kind of, you know, work your way on your own. After just four years, he struck out on his own and launched Clutch Sports Group in 2012. LeBron James went with him. When you first started this, you were underestimated. Not only was I underestimated, I was also not wanted. I didn't look like the success in our industry, especially from a place of decision-making. And I wanted to disrupt the industry. I wanted to be impactful but I wanted to come from a place of purpose. In 2013, with his first negotiation as agent for Phoenix Suns guard Eric Bledsoe, he proved the naysayers wrong. He said the Suns had offered $28 million. And then $48 million. And you turned it down? Yeah. But what was on the line? My career. Everyone was calling and saying, He's crazy, he don't know what he's doing, he's inexperienced. It sounds like you are really comfortable rolling the dice. I was born a dice roller. His gamble paid off. After hanging tough for a year, Clutch got Bledsoe a $70 million deal, $42 million more than the son's first offer. Great room. Today, Clutch has 70 employees with offices in Los Angeles, New York, and Atlanta. I mean, they're both in the same draft class. Paul teamed up with powerhouse agency UTA to expand Clutch's reach. I had to build a multi-hundred million dollar company to get people to believe in me. And there's still doubt. Critics say he's only successful because of his relationship with you. I mean, it's disappointing to hear that. But you gave him an opportunity. Yeah, and I don't give people opportunities much. Um... And he took well, way beyond um, than what he even imagined. Rich Paul now has a New Balance signature shoe, a first for an agent. His partner is more famous than he is. He's been in a relationship with Adele for two and a half years. Adele. She gave him a shout-out at the Grammys. Oh, God, Rich. He, t- he said, don't cry. If you win anything tonight, don't cry. And here I am crying. A couple of weeks later at his All-Star Game party, Paul's friends recognized his achievements. This is from us. With a $140,000 watch. Wow! 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 Do you have to pinch yourself sometimes? All the time. I had it worse than a lot of people. But I evolved, I matured, I transitioned. How does that feel? Feels great. It feels earned. You know? It wasn't given for sure. It was earned, which is good. I like that. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, 
which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tonight's last minute isn't really tonight's last minute, because tonight's 60 minutes isn't really 60 minutes. Stick around for an extra half hour for Leslie Stahl's look at how 3D printing and a company called Icon is revolutionizing how we build both here on Earth and eventually beyond. What you're watching is the building, actually the printing of a four-bedroom home. On this construction site, there's no hammering or sawing, just a nozzle squirting out concrete and by the end of the decade, an icon printer is supposed to fly to the moon to test print part of a landing pad. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back with this expanded edition of 60 Minutes after this. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Many put their hope in Dr. Serhat. His company was worth half a billion dollars. His research promised groundbreaking treatments for HIV and cancer. Scientists, doctors, renowned experts were saying, genius, genius, genius. People that knew him were convinced that he saved their life. But the brilliant doctor was hiding a secret. Do not cross this line that was being messaged to us. Do not cross this line. A secret the doctor was desperate to keep. This was a person who was willing to cold-heartedly just lie to people's faces. We're dealing with an international fugitive. From Wondery, the makers of Over My Dead Body and The Shrink Next Door comes a new season of Dr. Death, Bad Magic. You can listen to Dr. Death, Bad Magic ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. There was a time when futurists were predicting that the advent of 3D printing was going to change our lives, that each of our houses would have a 3D printer to make whatever items we need. What virtually no one predicted, though, was that there might soon be 3D printers that could construct almost the entire house. But that's just what a six-year-old Austin, Texas company called Icon is doing. 3D printing buildings. And if you believe Icon's mission-driven young founder, 3D printing could revolutionize how we build, help create affordable housing, 
even allow us to, wait for it, colonize the moon. Sound out of this world? Take a look. What you're watching is the building, actually the printing of a four-bedroom home. On this construction site, there's no hammering or sawing, just a nozzle squirting out concrete, kind of like an oversized soft-serve ice cream dispenser, laying down the walls of a house one layer at a time. It's the brainchild of a 41-year-old Texan who's rarely without his cowboy hat, Jason Ballard. 3D printing a house. Yes, ma'am. People are going to hear that and say no. We're sitting inside one right now. This house was printed. Yes, ma'am. Wow. There you are. Look at this. Welcome. And so was this one. Does a concrete home printed by a robot have to look cold and industrial? Maybe not. I like the curved wall. Ballard gave us a peek at the first completed model home in what will soon be the world's first large community of 3D printed houses, a hundred of them, part of a huge new development north of Austin. They'll start in the high $400,000 range. How exactly does 3D printing a house work? Well, it starts with this one and a half ton sack of dry concrete powder which gets mixed with water, sand, and additives, and is then pumped to the robotic printer. Now you are looking at how we control the beat size. Connor Jenkins, ICON's manager of construction here, explained that the printer completes one layer, called a bead, every 30 minutes, by which time it's hardened enough to be ready for the next bead. Steel is added every 10th layer for strength. The amount of change you're making is tiny. It takes about two weeks to print the full 160-bead house. Jenkins gave me the controls, an iPad. So look, Leslie, that's a little skinny. Will you press the plus one real quick? Aren't you Done. Worried? You just increase the bead size incrementally. I'd be worried if I were you. But turns out the path is entirely pre-programmed. I couldn't mess it up if I tried. Don't tell the people. I think that's the most gorgeous bead I've ever seen. I think this will be the highest-selling house. <laughs> For now, as Jason Ballard showed us, Icon is only 3D printing walls with cutouts for plumbing and electricity. Roofs, windows, and insulation are added the old-fashioned way by construction workers. He calls it a paradigm shift. It really is like a Wright Brothers moment for airplanes. In how we construct our housing. But why do we need a big shift like that? Because right now, it is too expensive it falls over in a hurricane, it burns up in a fire, it gets eaten by termites. The way you try to make it affordable is you trim quality on materials, you trim quality on labor. The result is these cookie cutter developments. And like, yeah. this is not the world, like we are not succeeding. It's something we have to get right on top of that. It's an ecological disaster. And I would certainly say it is existentially urgent that we shelter ourselves without ruining the planet we have to live on. Fire-resistant, flood-resistant, wind Ballard showed us a sample of a 3D-printed wall beside a conventionally built one. You say it's faster, more efficient. Yes. Why do you say that? What you've got, let's count the materials. Siding, one. Moisture barrier, two. Sheathing, three. Uh, stud, four. Drywall, five. And then float tape and texture. You can count that either as one or three. But you've got at least half a dozen novel steps that have to take place to deliver 
an American stick frame wall system. By comparison, we need a single material supply chain delivered by a robot. Let's talk about waste. Yes, ma'am. Over here. At the end of constructing a home with these materials, there are truckloads and truckloads of waste left over. These studs are going to have offcuts that go into a waste pile. Same with siding, same with drywall. All Whereas with 3D printing, he says, you only print what you need. So in short, like if an alien came down to planet Earth and saw these two ways of building and said, from first principles, which is better, the alien would go stronger, faster, termite-resistant, fire-resistant, like by a mile, this is the best way to build though old-school construction workers may disagree. If Ballard sounds a little like a revved-up salesman or a preacher, there's a reason for that. He grew up in East Texas, a studious, outdoorsy, spiritual kid, first in his family to graduate from college. You were thinking about becoming an Episcopal priest. Yeah, I was almost an Episcopal priest. But along the way, I started just like getting this like itch about housing not being right. So I studied conservation biology. I got involved in sustainable building and I worked at the local homeless shelter. And so now I'm thinking about homelessness and I'm working in sustainable building. Along the way, my hometown gets destroyed by a hurricane and I have to go help my family pull drywall out of their house. I feel like oh, I, wow. life is just putting housing in front of me. Right as I've been like approved to go to seminary, and so I go to my bishop, the Bishop of Texas, Andy Doyle. He's still the Bishop of Texas. And uh, I said, what do I do? And at the end, he said, Jason, I want you to pursue this housing thing. Like, this is your priesthood. This is your vocation. And if it doesn't work out, the church has been here for a long time. We'll still be here. But uh, that must have turned the switch for you. It did. It made it more than a hobby or a business. Right? It sort of became a mission. He began pursuing that mission with Evan Loomis, a buddy from Texas A&M who had gone into finance. As we looked at it, like nobody had incorporated kind of the holy trinity of innovation to housing, which was robotics, advanced materials, and software. So in a borrowed warehouse on nights and weekends, and having read everything they could find about the mechanics of 3D printing, they tried to design a 3D printer that could make a building. How big was it? It was 10 feet by 10 feet by 10 feet. So it would have, it would have printed, if we had ever gotten into work, which we did not, uh, it would have printed like a 100-square-foot like demonstration building. They the didn't get it to did. work, but enter Alex LaRue, a recent Baylor engineering graduate who was tinkering with a similar idea. Did you ever actually build anything? Yeah, I did. What was it? They printed shed. Shed doesn't sound too cool, but it was a big milestone. It's a real structure. Yeah. The three co-founded Icon in 2017 and soon got funding to print a small house to unveil at Austin's South by Southwest Festival the following spring. They built a new, larger printer that worked. And we got really excited. Okay, Jason, where are we right now? We are printing the world's uh, first permitted 3D printed house. But the kinks hadn't quite been worked out. So at one point, we ran the printer into the print. Explain that. It's supposed to go up, and it went down, and then drove into the house and like pushed a bunch <laughs> exactly. of layers off. Funny now, but not so much at the time. Some engineers, folks who were like helping us, sat us down and said, guys, it's been a great effort, but you're not going to get there. So like, why don't you guys get some rest? And we were basically like, get out of here. <laughs> well, like, it's true. Anyone who wants to to finish this home may stay. Everyone else needs to leave. And the three of you all agreed on that. Yeah. We knew that we were on to something. Mm. 
And like, we, this was like our shot and we weren't gonna miss it. Alex. They worked round the clock and made the festival deadline by just hours. Hey Ballard, any words for the victory lap? Never, 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 never give up. I stand by those words. Yeah, sure, <laughs> never give up. He showed us the 350 square foot finished house. It's a small little house, but it's kind of elegant. Well, I'll be, that's not so bad. I mean, I think that's kind of how people felt yeah. about it. It was like better than they expected, and it was easy to believe, well, they'll get better. That small little house won Icon a lot of attention, an innovation award, investors, meetings with the military, and with another Austin innovator, Alan Graham, who created a village called Community First that provides small homes to several hundred of the formerly homeless. Our goal was really the most despised outcasts, lost and forgotten of our community. Wow. Average time on the streets is nine years. Average age of death is 59. It's an absolute miracle out there. And so when uh, we were ready to start building homes, uh, one of the first organizations we reached out to was Alan Graham. So Icon 3D printed a welcome center and then six small houses for village residents. That's how 73-year-old Tim Shea, who battled heroin addiction for decades, in 2020 became the first person in this country to live in a 3D-printed home. Before I saw these houses, in my mind, I thought, it must be cold. You're shaking because you don't think that. No, it's just the opposite. You feel embraced uh, or, you know, enveloped. People that live, that are in the economic strata of the men and women that we serve are gonna be the last people on the planet that are gonna benefit out of new technology. And he wanted to make sure that they were the first. The first person in North America to live in a 3D printed house was homeless. Yeah, I know, isn't that so? The years since have seen tremendous growth for Icon, a new factory to build more printers, and improve the quality of its concrete, and a facility called Printland to experiment with new designs. Icon has printed small homes in rural Mexico, vehicle hide structures for the Marine Corps, huge barracks for the Army and Air Force, and a deluxe showcase home featuring wavy walls and curves that would be prohibitively expensive if built traditionally but not when programmed into a 3D printer. So in your minds, is your customer a homeless person or is your customer me? There's a trick here because what our heart wants to do is to serve the very poor. And it's often been like confusing for people to understand. It's like, I thought you guys were helping homelessness. Why are you building that fancy house? Yeah. I would resign if I was only allowed to build luxury homes. And we would go bankrupt right now if all we built was 3% margin homes for homeless people. But once this technology arrives in its full force, um, I think it fundamentally transforms the way we build. And not just on the Earth, 3D printing on the moon when we come back. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. 
This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Don't miss true crime anytime you want, anywhere you go with the 48 Hours Podcast. Real crimes. Like a John Grisham novel come to life. Real lives. He pointed a gun to me and said, this is the day you die. And he shot me. Real justice. There's some questions that have to be asked and need to be answered. I'm an innocent man and I hope the whole world can see it now. Catch the latest episodes of 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. It has been a staple of science fiction forever. Humans living and working on the moon. But for NASA, that dream is almost within reach. Their new Artemis program plans to return American astronauts to the moon for the first time in more than 50 years. This time, not just to visit, but eventually to stay and even use the moon as a base for exploring Mars and beyond. But staying on the moon requires infrastructure, landing pads, roads, housing. And you can't exactly bring two-by-fours and sheetrock on a spacecraft. That's where 3D printing comes in. NASA is partnering with Jason Ballard's company, Icon, to pioneer 3D printing on the moon. Three, two, one. And liftoff of Artemis One. Last fall, NASA launched the first in a series of Artemis missions. The The next, with crew on board, is scheduled for next fall. And by the end of the decade, an Icon printer is supposed to fly to the moon to test print part of a landing pad. Jason Ballard, who once applied to be an astronaut but was rejected, can't wait. If the schedule holds or even approximately holds, The first object ever built on another world will be built with Icon hardware. He wants Icon to be the first company to make something on another world. So do we. At Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, NASA scientists Jennifer Edmondson and Corky Clinton run a program called IMPACT, spelled M-M-P-A-C-T. Moon to Mars Planetary Autonomous Construction Technologies. Whoa, you people at NASA, you come up with these very, very long names. That's why we call it impact. (laughs) The key word there is autonomous. We want to be able to make structures that we need without having to be tended by astronauts. If you're going to have a truly sustainable presence on the lunar surface, you have to be as Earth independent as possible. NASA was interested in 3D printing, having looked at an early version almost 20 years ago. So when they heard about the progress Icon had made with their first houses in Austin, Corky Clinton traveled there to take a look. 
Being an engineer, I spent a lot of my time going around and looking at the size of the beads and how they went around the corners. And I'll tell you, I was really impressed with what they had accomplished. Impressed enough that NASA gave ICON development money in 2020 and then last fall, a $57 million contract. Welcome to Space Lab, Leslie. This is where we figure out how to build on other worlds. Ballard and Evan Jensen, who leads the project, explain the fundamental challenge. To bring an object roughly this size from Earth to the moon's surface would be $1 million. And think of how many sort of brick-sized things we would need to do, launch pad, landing pad, roads, habitats. So we have to learn to live off the land. You have to learn to build it there and use Correct. the materials yeah. from there. That's right. But that's no easy feat. It means using what's called lunar regolith, which covers the moon's surface, rather than concrete and water as a building material. Regolith is made up of rock that has been pummeled over billions of years from asteroids, comets, and things. Is it like sand? It's actually finer than sand. ICON has a big tub full of simulated moon regolith, and they have invented and built a robotic system to 3D print with it. You're going to build all those roads and buildings out of this? That's correct, the robots will. This is actually the mission that we are scheduled to fly. As he pointed out in this rendering, our robotic arm with our laser system, they've created a whole new way to 3D print with lasers. Instead of a nozzle squirting out soft concrete, a high-intensity laser beam will melt the powdery regolith to transform it into a hard, strong building material. They're running experiments now using the laser to create a small sample. Once that red light is on, we're hot. Oh, Lots of power. Here we go. We watched on monitors as the arm got into position. There's the laser. Oh, that white thing's the laser. So it's melting right now. It's going up to, say, 1,500 degrees Celsius. And it's going to complete its second pass. You can see it emerging there. See the dark object on the screen? That's the object we just made with the laser. They can add more regolith and laser again and again to build in layers to go as high as they want, which will be done remotely from Earth. It takes hours to cool, so they showed me a sample they'd made days earlier. This is pretty darn hard. That's our landing pad you're holding it. Yeah. I'm holding the landing pad. That's exactly right. It's pretty cool. That's a scientific term. ICON sends them to NASA where they're blasted with this special plasma torch. The torch will be about 4,000 degrees. To see if they can take the heat, a landing pad would have to withstand. See there. Oh, there it is. The torch is so bright, you have to watch on a monitor. That was it. A few minutes later, out it came. Oh. It's just a little bit warm. It looks good to me. I don't see any loss of material. I don't see any cratering. It survived the test? Passed the test with flying colors. The next test will be operating the entire robotic arm and laser. We'll put in a large-scale simulant bed. Inside NASA's giant thermal vacuum chamber, which mimics the moon's extreme cold, heat, and vacuum conditions. 
This is sort of like a... Ballard's idea is to eventually send mobile 3D printers to the moon. So this moves the printer around. With a longer robotic arm sticking out of the top to print whatever is needed. And then they would build the road, and then they would build those habitats, right? It's a and it wouldn't stop there. If we can do it on the moon, we can do it on Mars. The moon is actually harder. It's harder. Mars is uh, almost in every way easier, except for it's so far away. Easier, they agree, because for one thing, Mars doesn't have extreme temperature swings. Still, in my mind, it's science fiction. But in your minds, it's absolutely in the palm of your hand. It's going to happen. We can see the steps in the technology to get us there. Now, that's thrilling. It's exciting. Quality can't go backwards in block four. Well, like, Icon says trying to 3D print on the moon and Mars is helping with their work here on Earth. They are formulating new mixes to reduce the carbon footprint of their concrete. We think we'll be there by end of year. And they're trying out more radical architecture. Quite complex shapes and geometries. Almost looks like ripples on the surface of water. Patterned walls. It's very subtle. Oh, look at this. Yeah, it almost looks impossible. And next year, as in these renderings, they'll be printing round hotel rooms in Marfa, Texas, and futuristic-looking designer homes. You see a bedroom on that end with a shower and a bedroom here. And here's uh, some renderings of the interior. Wow. Right? It gets you going, doesn't it? We're living at a time right now where a lot of CEOs have been caught over-promising, hyping, mm -hmm. um, thinking of Theranos. You're absolutely right. And, it, and it, it's, it's, it's a tougher thing than you know, because part of the job is to get your investors, get your team, and in our case, the world, um, to believe the things you are saying, except the things you are saying don't exist yet. Uh, yeah, oh you, need to, you need to get them to believe. So it's hard to know. Like even in this interview, I actually haven't yet told you all the things I believe we're going to do because I'm like measuring myself. Give us one example, <laughs> something wild. I mean, in the future, I think most buildings will be designed by AI, most projects will be run by software, and almost everything will be built by robots. And I don't think that's that far away. I, at my age, find that very depressing. Huh. But I'm sure young well, people let me, yeah, don't. No, no. That world, housing will be more abundant, more affordable, more beautiful. It will make this version of housing look depressing by example. You know that expression, if it seems too good to be true, it is? Or, I do know that expression, uh, but cars and airplanes and moon landings seem too good to be true for a moment as well. And so like, maybe the only proof I can give you is like I'm betting my life on it. Like I have this one precious life to live and I'm using it to do this. And if I could think of a better way, I'd be doing that instead. Or I'd go fishing. Like, this is so hard. <laughs> and you like fishing. I love fishing. I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondry Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.
Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.